You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. I'm so excited about this episode of Spot On called How News Can Confuse. And, you know, I did a little bit of my homework here, and I had some help with my guest who's going to be talking about this. But do you know that we make a ridiculous amount of decisions every day? And unfortunately, many of the decisions that we make, you know, from like what you're going to eat to breakfast to, you know, what you're going to eat after you work out, are often based on misinformation. And how I learned about this is because my guest today actually just wrote a book about it. So with that, I want to introduce today's guest, Timothy Caulfield. He's a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a professor in the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. He's in social media all over the place. He writes in the popular press. He's got so many books. that He has he has more books than he has children. And he just has a new book out called Your Day, Your Way, The Fact and Fiction Behind Your Daily Decisions. And let me tell you something. I read this book. This is absolutely fabulous. And wait until you hear what he has to say. So with that, I want to welcome Tim Caulfield to Spot On. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely thrilled to be here. I am so excited. Also, okay, great book. This is my first question. Why did you write this book? I mean, it's great. But how did you even think about, I'm going to write this book? Tell me. Well, you know, as you said in the intro, you know, I've always been fascinated with the impact of misinformation on how we view health, on how we view science, how relevant is that today? And I'm also interested in all those cognitive biases and you know ideological pressures that shape our decisions. And we so often don't think about these things in the context of big decisions, you know, vaccination hesitancy, uh, voting, and even things like GMOs and organic food. And I really thought it'd be interesting to look at those pressures in the context of the decisions we make every day. And that's because, you know, first of all, I thought it'd be kind of fun and interesting. And I unpack what the evidence says about all those, those decisions we make big and small. But but I also thought it'd be a really good way to to highlight the impact of of these broad social forces on our lives and our decision making. So it makes it real, right? It brings it closer to us, you know, so people can relate to it. So whether you're talking about uh, sitting on the on the toilet or whether you're talking about letting your kids walk to school. And of course, as you know, whether you're talking about the food that you eat, you know, these social forces matter. Uh, and as you know, from the book, I'm not trying to tell people, it's not a preachy book at all. It, it, on the contrary, one of the points, big point in the book is, you know, often you can just relax, right? You know, the evidence is not as definitive as often portrayed. It really is more, I, I hope, invites people kind of to ignore the noise and look at what the evidence actually says. Yeah, it, it, it's fabulous. It is a fun read. You could probably read it on the toilet, but let's not go there. That's not appropriate. <laughs> but but it is a fun read. And, and you're right. It's not preachy or anything. It's just fascinating. Like, oh, my goodness gracious, you're right. Uh, that does affect the coffee that I buy in the morning. It's, it's those kinds of things. So before we start in to give us some examples of how 
as you go through your day. And, and the book is so fascinating because it's set up basically as soon as you start, get up in the morning, how every decision you make during your day could, you know, how misinformation or the proper information could affect your decision. But before we start with that, with some examples here, you came upon three paradoxes. So tell me what the three paradoxes are. I think that sets the stage for why we are so influenced by uh, misinformation and correct information. The point was really to, to, look, this is an unusual time when it comes to decision making. We have the, the knowledge paradox. We have more scientific information than ever before. And, and we have more access to that information than ever before. So this really is uh, an incredible time with respect to access to information. But we're just as uninformed as, as ever, right? So we have this fascinating paradox between a whole bunch of knowledge and being misinformed. So, you know, why is that? The other paradox is the risk paradox. And this is the idea that we're living in this dangerous world, right? This is like a dystopian, Mad Maxian world that we have to be fearful all the time. When the reality is that this, you know, it's hard to say this during the middle of a of pandemic, but but the reality is for most people, most of the time, this is the safest time in human history. And so we let fear kind of rule our lives. You're so spot on, Tim, because, I mean, if I read one more thing in, on Twitter or Facebook that you have to detox uh, and do a detox uh, t to get rid of all of these toxins from your body, and it is fear-mongering. I mean, you don't have to do this, but it scares people, and it scares vulnerable people. And you gave a great example of this with Jessica Albers, The Honest Company, uh, with her diet. Yeah, the, I mean, The Honest Company, which is, I think it's still worth a billion dollars, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Joan. It's, it's this huge company. And it's really built on the foundation of fear. And, you know, she sells all these products that are aimed at really solving a problem that doesn't exist, right? And the diapers are just, you know, just one example of that. She has all these products that are, are allegedly, you know, toxin-free. Who needs toxin? -free? You know, these diapers are, uh, are aimed at make parents feel guilty and that they're supposed to buy these products. And unfortunately, Joan and I outline in the book why this is the case. It works. It works. And and that's just one example. Let me tell you, there's not a handbook for raising kids. If there was one, we don't have time to read it. But we are scared to death to do anything wrong. So here it is, like pushing these diapers, you know, diapers that are safe because the regular CVS diapers and knockoffs are not safe. But you're scared as a parent to really make a mistake. I, I love the point you just made there. You know, there is no manual. There's no magical way to be a good parent, right? Especially in this era of social comparison with social media, we're, we feel guilty all the time, right? We're driven by fear. We're driven by the, the, these social norms that aren't really based on reality. Right. And the third paradox? This is the perfection paradox, you know, and it's this idea that we're always striving for this, this ideal, whether you're talking about beauty or fitness or parenting. And I point out that in addition to the fact that that ideal often doesn't exist at all, it isn't there, that ideal doesn't really matter. <laughs> and the product, again, just like the fear one uh, that's being marketed often doesn't even do what it's promised to do. So it's, again, a worst case scenario.
And I'm just going to quote this because this is from his book. And you said there was recent research, including a large analysis of more than 40,000 college students, have found that both perfectionism and attributes and to try to be uh, perfectionist, the social pressures have increased over the decades and really has not made us any more happier. In fact, has, you know, caused a host of physical and mental harm. That's right. And and of course, that's part of the paradox. You know, the idea is if I just achieve this illusory goal, I'm going to be happier. Well, not only is that goal not real, and even if for some reason you feel that you've achieved it, you're not going to be happier and you're ruining the journey. And the cliche is true. (laughs) You know, the journey is what it's all about. Right. So it's terrible situation. And but it's sold to us. Right. It's pushed on us by so many different forces. All right. So we have all this information out there where we're scared to death. We're trying to lower risk and we're trying to be perfect. So then you go and you talk about, based upon these paradoxes, how this effect affects your decision making as the day goes on. And, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I read the book. So the first one I just want to talk about, what the heck? We just got out of bed. So I love this first one because I do this all the time, Tim, and I'm so bad. I have to check my phone first thing in the morning. So explain that. And as you point out, the gimmick of the book is it takes place over a usual day, right? And so, you know, you wake up. Yeah, don't do that, Joan. Don't check your phone when you wake up. First of all, Joan, your phone shouldn't be sitting by your bed. So shame on you, number one. And number two, don't check it. You know, it's something like 85% of people check their phone as soon as they wake up. You know, it's just a terrible idea. And it's like over 70% check it on the toilet <laughs> while they're, while, well, you know, I don't need to hear about your business. And so this is, you know, this is not a good idea. It's not a good idea for a bunch of reasons. You know, one, and it's, Joan, it's hard to study this well. It's correlation car, uh, causation research, but there's a body of evidence emerging to suggest that, you know, looking at social media, looking at email, it stresses us out, right? And it just sort of adds to the chaos of our day. Not a great way to start, right? And also there's, you know, the concern of, you know, you have a little bit of sleep inertia, you know, so, you know, your head's not going to be 100% clear, and not the best time to be looking at something serious or responding, right? You don't want to uh, do something you regret later in the day. So just not a good way to start your day. And 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 as I said, your phone shouldn't even be next to your bed. But again, we're trying to seek out information. And again, there's so much information. We're trained to get it. So you, hello, you can't even wake up and get, get a cup of coffee and sit down at the breakfast table before you have to do your phone right away. So again, you know, we're looking for all that information. All right. So... This one I loved. Okay, because I know this. I know this. I know the stepping on the bathroom scale. Now, why, 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 why should we do this? Think about it. For most of human history, you know, the vast uh, majority of human history, we had no idea how much we weighed. And we probably didn't care. We all we were concerned about just getting food, right? Uh, and so it's weighing ourselves is actually a relatively recent phenomenon. And and er, early on, it was tied to aesthetics. And I think this is one of the problems with it, right? You know, that you step on a scale and you have this ideal weight. And it was very early on tied to, um, again, that illusory ideal that we're all supposed to have. You know, look at the advertising around the 50s and 60s with bathroom scales. Fast forward to now, and we're in this sort of a, a reverse moment where um, almost all the health blogs, all the wellness blogs, you know, all the celebrity wellness gurus are telling you to 
throw out your scale. And there's some rationale to that. You know, I've actually done research on this. I've worked with people who are, you know, very into this area, the concern about weight, weight bias, right, and body image issues. So I think that that has made this this complex and it sort of makes that idea of throwing it out intuitively appealing. Um, now, I'm talking about adults here. I think the research around young adults and teenagers is different and individuals who do have body image issues. But if you look at the body of evidence, it tells us that weighing yourself regularly is an effective weight maintenance tool. And that's how it should be viewed. It, you know, it, that number is not a number of your self-worth. It's not a number about, you know, how healthy you are. Right, Joan? It really just should be viewed as a number that helps you with your weight maintenance goals. Uh, but that's not how it's portrayed right now. And it has become very politicized. Now, I do end on uh, this section by saying, look, it's really what works for you, right? There's no magical solution, but just think of it as a tool, nothing more. You know, uh, it's funny you said that because I used to be in private practice and, and my specialty was weight management. And I, I would, you know, make deals with my clients and say, you cannot weigh yourself unless I'm with you and I'm not coming to your house. So you have to come into my office and that's when I'm going to weigh you. And that's, that's the only time I want you to go on the scale because that number can fluctuate and change. And I have to be here with you because if you get a disappointing result and don't like the number, I've got to, I've got to save you and tell you why. And if I had a dollar, Tim, for everybody, you know, where the weight came up and then I looked at the food record or I asked them what they had yesterday, I don't understand why it went up. All I did was have Chinese food for lunch and then I had the leftovers for dinner. Oh, you think it may be sodium and water? That's, you know, the problem. And so so I would have to walk them, you know, say, look, this is going to go 48 hours. Trust me, the weight's going to go down. And of course it did. But if you don't have that insight and you see the numbers go up and you're trying so hard, it's it's really, as you said, it, it's not healthy and it's devastating. So you really, you know, I understand that completely. And that's why I loved this part about uh, stepping on the bathroom scale. Okay, tell, talk about multitasking. Oh, I, I love the multitasking stuff. This is another section. I, I could have done a whole book on this. Because, um, Joan, every, every, first of all, I try to multitask all the time, right? So guilty. Everyone in my family tries to multitask all the time. All my students are multitasking while I'm I'm lecturing. Um, and, Joan, everyone stinks at it. Everyone thinks they're good at it. And they've actually done a lot of research around this. About 97, over 95% of people are terrible at multitasking. There is this really small percentage of people that are okay at it. Um, they're not saying they're fabulous at it, they're okay at it. And by the way, you're not one of those 97%. I'm not talking to you, Joan. I'm talking to the 97% of people out there who are not good at it. So don't do it. I'm going to tell you that the people who are best at it are women. Okay, so I, I yeah, being a mother and a professional <laughs> woman, trust me, we know how to multitask. But that, that's another side. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. It is also one of those things that people a they think they can do it right. So this is really interesting. You know, I have this intuitive perception of the universe, but also employers are looking for it and expecting it. It's it's one of those things that that it's supposed to be the skill set that's going to help you get a job. And there's this pressure to present yourself as a multitasker and to multitask when the evidence suggests it's both not a good idea, right? Because you actually are less productive when you try to multitask. Um, and there's good evidence to back that up. Uh, and also, um, um, you can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's a bad, you know it's, you're not the kind of person.
this is what I love about it, Kim, because you're gonna you're gonna see things. Um, how to be a better multitasker. Five five top ways to be a better multitasker. And again, this is where we go back to the paradoxes, where we get all this information that's out there, but it's it's wrong information. Yeah, you don't want to be better at multitasking. Yeah, this is a good example of just ignore that noise. But I bet you every single day, you know, because I, I actually sort of survey the self-help and self-improvement and, you know, productivity, web, you know, blogs and websites. Every day, there's, as you just said, there's an article about how you should be multitasking and how you can doing, be doing it better when the reality is you can't do it and you shouldn't be doing it. And, it's, you know, it can even be dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're in a moving vehicle. Absolutely. And speaking about things that are crazy and uh, the science is really poor, let's talk about gluten-free foods. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about gluten. Now, now so this is a topic that I, I have been following. I... John, I think since the trend started, and I've actually done empirical research around this topic, and so I'm really fascinated by it because it it had its cultural moment, right, with Miley Cyrus and all these people getting on the gluten-free bandwagon, uh, and it really took off and became the health food trend, right? You know, you had Wheat Belly and all these other kinds of books. You know this better than I do. You know, there's unless you're celiac, you know, which is one percent, and or have, which is still relatively rare, depending on the evidence you look at, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. You don't need to go gluten free, right? In fact, it's the evidence tells us it's not healthy. Uh, the evidence tells us that gluten free food itself is not healthier, and uh, it's not a weight loss strategy, as you know well, Joan. So there's just really no health reason to go gluten-free unless you have to because you have a you know a clinical reason uh to be doing it but despite all of that joan and despite the fact it's still you know it's not really the diet of the moment it's still becoming more popular and i think that's because and i'm fascinated by this and and i actually like to do more research on on this topic the the phrase gluten-free has taken on taken on a health halo Uh, you know it's it's like the word natural it's like the word organic right it's like toxin free or chemical free and we've got to sort of blow up that health halo i think and 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 really try to make our view of gluten more evidence-based yeah and again that goes back you want to reduce your risk because the people think that you know by getting gluten out of their diet that they have a healthier diet or the better manage the weight and it goes back to you know we're trying to you know, we live in these paradoxes and it's making our life miserable i mean and and, and gluten free foods are much more expensive talk about drinking water <laughs> i love this one um because uh It is, you know, this very basic biological thing that we need to do, you know, we need to hydrate. And it's become an industry, uh, this huge industry, getting water. And uh, so there's a whole bunch of different dimensions to this. And this is another one that you could, you know, really go on and on about. But first of all, there's this idea that we had to have to drink bottled water, right? And and, you know, huge caveat, you know, if you if you if there's a disaster or if you live in some jurisdiction where there's actual issues with the drinking water, I get it. But but for most people in, um, you know, Europe, uh, United States, you know, Canada, you know, uh, really most of <laughs> most of the world I could go on and on, you know, Japan, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You don't you can drink tap water. Tap water is absolutely safe and, and absolutely fine and better environmentally. In fact, they've done blind taste tests between tap water and really fancy bottled water and people pick the tap water. Um, so there's no reason to drink bottled water uh, and unless there are you know, these, you know, these rare uh, circumstances where you need to access it. 
Also, as you know well, there's no magic to how much water you need to drink. You drink when you're thirsty, you know, and all these other water gimmicks, alkaline, GMO-free. There's actually GMO-free water, you know, gluten-free water. There's gluten-free water. All of that is just a marketing scam. Isn't it amazing that this has become a huge industry? It's absolutely amazing. You know, and, uh, you know, I've written on this before, but it's absolutely amazing because some of these designer bottled waters actually come from municipal, um, you know, c- yeah. cities. So they're just taking your tap water and putting it in a fancy bottle and, you know, having you put, you know, a skyrocket the cost of it. So it's, it's unbelievable. The, the thing that makes me so funny is why do we have to leave the house with a bottle of water like where are we in the sahara desert like what what i don't understand this i don't i mean growing up right tim we would go outside and even in the summer we'd be playing you know kickball and everything and sweating everything we didn't have water what is when you got thirsty you went in the house and got a drink <laughs> i just don't i don't understand all my it. students come into no, i don't want to pick on them because they're wonderful but you know they come into class with these you know these stainless steel fancy water my kids one of my kids i would pick on her does the same thing you know, and, and I and I, you know, I tease her about it, of course. But you know, they're constantly sipping. I don't know. We're not in this. You know, as you said, we're not trekking across the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I know it's so funny. Okay, and the last one because now uh, you know uh, uh, we're on beverages. And let me tell you, this is funny because I'm Italian, which you well know. So I like my wine. So tell tell us the wine tasting, which I thought was terrific. <laughs> Uh, I, I, this also a topic I love. Um, and it, I, this one upset people. Like I had colleagues read it and they were angry at me about this one. And you've heard, people have heard this before. I know they've heard it before, but it's still a great example of what I call the illusion of difference, right? And, um, we are all susceptible to this illusion of difference for different, you know, what, something that we love, whether it's scotch, which I got it, I've gotten into over the pandemic or whether it's coffee, um, but but the reality is we, most of us cannot tell the difference between wines. I know that people think that's ridiculous. No, by that I mean expensive wine and and cheap wine. Um, you know they've done a lot of different studies. They've come at this in different directions. They've even done studies where people are doing like their master's degree in wine tasting, right, in France, and and they can't tell the difference between expensive wine and cheap wine. There was a famous study where they took. Uh, white wine and made it red. They put food coloring in, it and and experts couldn't tell the difference. Right now, look the the bottom line. I I actually like this conclusion. Right, you should drink the wine that you like. You know, maybe it's eight dollars, maybe it's you know sixty dollars. Uh, and I do poke fun at myself, as you know, Joan. I love coffee, right? And 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 so what you're you're often paying for is is the ambiance. You maybe. You're paying for the history. Uh, you maybe like the label. You know those things have a huge impact on on our taste. You know and and our perception of of a product. And wine, I think, is one of the most powerful examples of that. Also, mostly because there's studies on it. I couldn't find that many. You know, peer reviewed studies are or even you know large kind of fun studies on coffee. But there has been studies. You know, these sort of more fun. Fun studies that have found that people will pick a Seven Eleven coffee that's been sitting on, uh, you know, uh, in those in those urns behind the cashier over the expensive one from, you know, the the hipster ca- cafe. Uh, we do this all the time. We do it with shoes. You know, we do it with sound equipment is another really good example of it. And we definitely do it with wine. Right. 
Right. And, you know, uh, this book is so entertaining. And, you know, and, and the beauty about reading this book, Your Day, Your Way, uh, the fact and the fiction behind your daily decisions, is you could read it with your coffee in the morning or with your cheap wine at late in day, Tim, and it would still be enjoyable reading the book. And maybe that's what you should – and actually you could read it in a day, so that could be part of it. But before I let you go, just give us your wisdom. I mean, how can we make healthy decisions throughout the day without making our lives crazy? <laughs> so help well, us. I, I do try. I do try. You know, provide you know critical thinking skills and and things that we can kind of adopt, and they're very straightforward. As 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 you know, Joan. But maybe what I'll end on is something that's sort of been a theme in all of my work, and and I know it's something that you're passionate about too. So it's a good it's a good way to to end. Uh, and and that is that we should really just focus on those those evidence-based, those science-based fundamentals, right? And and you can ignore almost all the other noise or or just watch the noise for fun, but don't let it stre- stress you out. So, you know, what do I mean by that? And again, I know this is something that you emphasize too. You focus on, you know, you don't smoke, you know, you get exercise. And by that, I mean, you just do something that you enjoy that makes, that you can move. You eat real food and you know this better than I do. There's really no magic there, Right. You try to maintain a healthy weight, but recognize we all come in different shapes and sizes and can be healthy in those shapes and sizes. You sleep, you know, you get a good night's sleep. You take obvious preventative strategies. You know, you get vaccinated, you wear a seatbelt, you wash your hands and you surround yourself with people you love. And, you know, what, you know, what more can you do? Nothing. <laughs> right. That's right. And as this book will tell you, you're wasting a lot of time on gluten-free and other things when that's really all you need. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Those are the, what, the top 10 things you need for a healthy life. So we're going to put a picture of uh, Tim Caulfield's new book, Your Day, Your Way, up on the uh, Spot On Facebook page. And I have to tell you, uh, please read it. This is It was just fascinating. It's a quick read and so, so enjoyable. So with that, I want to thank Tim Caulfield for being on Spot On. Thank you so much for having me. Always fun. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salji Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?